All right, folks, here we go. Two-Man Advantage, the podcast. Pierre, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is episode four already. It just, I feel now like we're going to get it right. This is, this is going to become like second, <laughs> it's going to become second nature to you and I. It'd be like muscle memory. We'll be doing podcasts in our sleep. And here we are. And podcast number four coincides with the opening days of the 2018-19 NHL regular season. How are you feeling? Do you, do you feel now you've seen that you've seen some games. Do you feel like you're in the groove now? You know, what's fun about opening week is that as much as you try to pay attention to preseason and all the reporting, I always find it intriguing to finally see how the lines match up and the power play units and the PK units, right? I mean, you just, you want to yeah. see with your own eyes and you want to see the game flow. You want to see the early trust from coaches and the new faces and, you know, often guys will be a surprise addition to the uh, opening night roster, but three weeks later, the pace is too much and it gets sent back down. So I love all that stuff. It's, uh, it's yeah. interesting. Good stuff. Well, I, I, we're going to get to that in a, in, a, in a moment, but I wanted to start with your trip earlier this week to New York, the NHL's Board of Governors meeting there. And I, I have to tell you, maybe I'm, I shouldn't be surprised by it, but I still, from afar, was a little bit taken aback by the overwhelming enthusiasm and, you know, sort of optimism for team number 32, the Seattle, whatever they're going to be, um, it, you know, uh, a terrific presentation from all reports from the Seattle group, uh, very well received by the NHL's Board of Governors. And it, it just, it seemed to me a little bit different than the whole Vegas process, which, you know, you go back to the surprise announcement by Gary Bettman that Bill Foley was going to be allowed to do a trial season ticket run in Vegas. And, you know, all the way along, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, the, the deputy commissioner, were like, they were definitely applying the brakes, like, okay, we're just checking, we're, you know, like nothing's done yet. It just seemed to me a little bit different with Seattle, and I wonder if the same, and does it mean anything as we move forward and, and what is almost certainly going to be the 32nd team um, in the NHL? You know, from the get-go, Scott, even if you go back to last December's Board of Governors meetings in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, the zest in which the commissioner announced that Seattle was being invited to apply was quite noticeable. I, uh, you know, it, it was like, please, 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 let's make this happen. And, uh, and, and whereas you're right with Vegas and understandably so because of the unknown with Las Vegas, I think with Vegas, there was a little more hesitance and, and it was more of a conservative effort to make sure that, that, that they, you know, they sort of, put their toes in the water on it and then rush into it. Whereas with Vegas, it, it just feels like, why didn't we do this 10 years ago? And, and really that's the true, I think that's the true sentiment anyway, as you know, the league was privately, I think disappointed that, that Seattle didn't make the first round of expansion as it is. Right. I mean, they, they had thought that Seattle would try and get in when, when Vegas and Quebec city applied. And at the time Seattle didn't, uh, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the arena and, and lining up everything. Anyway, it's going to happen now. And, and, and Tuesday was a huge day. Tuesday was the day where if the league had any doubts remaining about Seattle, that would have been the day where the executive committee would have said, uh, you know what, why don't you come back to us in a few months when you've answered this, this, and this, and then we'll recommend to the rest of the owners that we, that we go forward. No, instead they said, okay, we're let's full steam ahead here. So it'll, it'll be a formality unless something dramatic happens that Seattle doesn't get voted in in uh, December 3rd and 4th in Sea Island, Georgia. 
where the Board of Governors will be. I've already booked my flight. Nice. Well, I always like it when the Board of Governors, because they always have their meetings as far away as humanly possible from any kind of hockey game. So that's a good, it's good that they're going to Sea Island because they don't worry about actually being close to any real hockey being played on the ice. So I wanted to ask you, and people, I know they, the ice glaze over as soon as you say CBA, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, part of what interests me about this you know, really the, 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 uh, you know, the embracing of this Seattle franchise. And I know the Seattle people um, as their preferred start time. And it makes sense, you know, with uh, assuming the arena um, is remains on schedule, all those kinds of things. But of course, you know, the potential for the league to be in yet another lockout position in 2021 looms large, but it, it just seems it just seems like this is I, the dynamic is different. Like every, you know, people are looking forward. You talk to a lot of players at the player tour in Chicago in September about the idea of CBA and the fact that really the league is quite, I think more or less comfortable with the current system. You know, are there some tweaks that could be made, et cetera, et cetera. But with the Seattle thing, do you think it changes the dynamic in how we proceed? And maybe like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to even say this, like talking about a shutout in the middle of the second period or a no hitter. Like, can we get away without the NHL grinding to a halt at the end of this current CBA? Does the Seattle thing change that, do you think? Yeah, I think I have too many battle scars from uh, living on sidewalks in Manhattan in January uh, a couple times in my life from covering lockouts to, 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 to be able to grasp that emotion, Scott. I just think I just think the participants in this dialogue find ways to go at each other's throats. And, and so I hope I'm proven wrong. But um, the one difference is it's up to the players this time. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about all this is that the owners brought the war, brought the fight to the players in 04 and in 2012. They, they wanted a cap and then they wanted 50-50. And, you know, it took a lot of bloodshed to get both. The owners are, as you said, Scott, they're largely satisfied with this CBA. In fact, one owner, and the owners are not supposed to talk about the CBA. I texted five owners. Only one of them got back to me and, and only spoke to me in the condition of a- anonymity. The other four never got back to me, but I got an email from a league official saying, stop emailing my owners about CBA. <laughs> so it's, 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 it felt like we were back on the, back on the horse uh, covered a lockout. But, you know, as, as the one owner said to me, it'd be embarrassing if, if, if there's a work stoppage because the system works and it's not perfect. I mean, listen, the, the, there are a bunch of stuff. I mean, listen, the, in the perfect world that the league would, would love to have player contracts limited to five or six years instead of, seven or eight and there's a few other things uh, but it's really up to the players the players have to decide how angry and and annoyed they are about escrow and to some degree the olympics although i think the olympics is a red herring in the sense that you know the league isn't having preseason games in china two years in a row because they have no interest in going to the beijing olympics come on right so, exactly. so to me that's that, 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 that's one of those things where it doesn't even have to be a CBA negotiation. It can be a, a separate international package that the two sides figure out. But escrow is a real deal. And, and the reason players hate escrow is they understand that you need some kind of device to figure out how to split the pot 50-50. It, I think it's the annoying part of they still haven't got their escrow money back from two years ago. It's this annoying process where the league and the, and the PA takes so long to figure out the the revenues that that 
that some players who paid like 18 per, you know, 15% escrow two years ago still haven't got some of it back. That's right. Greatly annoying to a lot of players. And I think they, a lot of them want to see that cleaned up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the timing with the Seattle, I mean, it, I mean, how embarrassing for the league in general. I, I mean, it's, it would be embarrassing for the league <laughs> overall if yet again, the a new CBA has to come with some sort of work stoppage. But even more so now that you're inviting, you know, a $650 million uh, expansion fee and you you know, you have to delay it because you can't get your, your bargaining house in order. And as you say, I, it takes right. two to tango. I, I get that. But and you also have the, I mean, you have the Olympics coming up in 2022. And for me, you know, the idea of uh, you work so hard to have the World Cup of Hockey in 2016, it should come again in, in 2020, right? Like that's the natural right. pattern. And if you really care about it, and if you if it really is something that matters, frankly, to both the players in the league, that's another layer of embarrassment if you can't have it in 2020 because well, you can't get your house in order. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I could be proven wrong, but I think there's a 0% chance that the owners will vote next September to reopen the CBA for 12 months later. I, I honestly believe the owners will, will vote to stay in because they're fine. So two weeks later, the PA has to respond by September 15, 2019. They have to announce their intentions. And that's where it's, it's, it's actually, I'm getting a lot of mixed signals so far. And part of it is that the players still have to have their meetings throughout the year with Donald fear and figure out what they want to do. But I don't know, like if you're, if you're a player right now, even though you've got a lot of issues with escrow and, and, and so on, do you not want to just see the CBA through to 2022 and then, you know, figure it out after that for, yeah. And, and just for the, for the point of, um, for Seattle, because here's the thing. Yeah. Of course the league urgently would like Seattle to go off without a hitch in the fall of 2020. It's also 23 new jobs for the NHLPA. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, it's not like the players don't have an investment in Seattle going out without a hitch either. So, um, I mean, I, I think that's something to keep in mind. So I, I don't know that we're ultimately going to have labor peace, Scotty. Uh, I think when it's time to actually negotiate a new CBA, whether it's 2020 or 2022, I think there'll still be some old habits coming to the forefront. And I think we'll have some games lost, but it may be that it's delayed until the very end of this deal and not reopen in two years before. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it gives me, Two years closer to retirement, my friend. So that's a, that would be glorious. So it's all about me. So, uh, all right. So let's uh, let's talk some real hockey here. And and you said something interesting early on about you, you know when you you know you eyeball what teams are going to do and players are going to be in different positions and all those kinds of things. And I know you saw Montreal and Toronto and uh, it to me might have been the best opening night game. Man, it was it was fast and fun and the Canadians played their hearts out. And but you know what about you know. How, I just love the decision by Claude Julian, and this is not this is no slight against Thomas Placanic or Carl Alsner, but you know, what a what a gutsy move for a veteran coach to say, you know what, I'm I'm my lineup tonight is good is not going to have those two veteran guys and Carl Alsner especially, you know, has is you know just one year into a long deal in in Montreal, but those are those are the kinds of messages I, I just love that they get sent whether it's in Montreal or, or elsewhere, but this notion that you don't get a roster spot just because you've got a big contract or your number, mm -hmm. you know, first round pick or whatever. And I wonder, Hey, were you surprised by that? And, and are there, you know, other sort of surprise moments in the, in the first few days of the regular season you went, Oh wow. That I didn't, that's, that's an interesting call. That's an interesting move there. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm with you. I really applaud what Clue Julian did. And uh, I think it sent a, a, a really gigantic message to that dressing room for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, I talked about that with Andrew Shaw afterwards. He goes, yeah, he goes, we're all on notice here. And I think when you've had a season that was the disaster of a season that the Canadians had last year, you, you kind of have to. And, you know, a lot of it is, and I wrote this in my column that night, but, you know, usually the team that wins the cup is the team that the other teams kind of look at and said, how did they do that? But I feel like the team that everyone's looking at more closely is the Vegas Golden Knights, the team that lost the Stanley Cup final, because something made that work. And part of it is the pace in which Vegas played with and, and the way that, the way that they approach the, the, you know, the tactically the game, I think Gerald Gallant deserves a lot of credit. I see a lot of teams trying to play with a quicker pace that way this year. But the other part, of course, is is the sort of democracy and meritocracy that, that Vegas lived off last year. H- how can you not equate that to what Claude Julian is trying to do from, from the hop in Montreal, right? Um, to, 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 to scratch an incredibly popular player in Thomas Placanic, who's two games away from, from, uh, from, from playing in a thousand games. And of course, as you mentioned, Alzner looking like a horrible signing at this point, and, and obviously must've had Mark Bergman's backing to do it. Those are huge decisions, but like Vegas last year, whether it's benching David Braun and scratching David Braun in the Stanley Cup final or barely playing Thomas Tatar after they gave up the farm for him. Yeah. There's a sense of fairness that derives from it if you're a player in that dressing room. And I, I, and I think, uh, first of all, Montreal played an outstanding opening night game against a much better opponent in Toronto. Um, and, and who knows? It's only one night, but there's some, after as bad a year as you can think of for all kinds of reasons in Montreal, it's hard not to think there's some positivity early on for the Canadians after that. Um, it's uh, you know it's so funny I, I, we, and I think it's a natural reaction to overanalyze the opening two or three games of regular season you know the, all, I think that's just natural I, I'm okay with that uh, so I'll, let me free let me phrase my my question or my thought to you in a different way if we're not going to overreact are, are we not going to overreact to you mentioned Vegas I, I thought it was interesting that both Vegas and the San Jose Sharks two teams that figure prominently in Western Conference predictions, figure prominently in potential Stanley Cup final participants from the West. Mm -hmm. Both those teams got absolutely mauled uh, at home in in their openers. And then you wonder, you know, this sort of notion of, you know, I'm not, I'm sure Gerard Gallant's group is not expecting things to come easily. And I'm sure that Pete DeBoer's group in San Jose, even with Eric Carlson there, or especially with Eric Carlson there, they're not expecting it just to happen but both those teams were were got mauled by philadelphia in the case of vegas and then anaheim a team a lot of people expect to be really fighting for a playoff spot and, and maybe in a in a period of decline especially with Corey perry out long term um the ducks absolutely waxed uh san jose so do you do you say yeah okay one game you know that everything is going to be right in both vegas and san jose or do you are you like hmm, do you did your eyebrows arch when you saw both those outcomes yeah, I would say especially, I mean, San Jose, Anaheim, nothing ever surprised me. When the three California teams play each other, you don't care what the records are and what the, you know, what team is supposed to have a better year. It's just like everything's out the window. So that didn't surprise me. But Vegas certainly did. I mean, they're so dominant at home last year and um, they did get waxed. Um, and I love the tweet from our athletic colleague, Jesse Granger, who said, for the first time in franchise history, the Golden Knights have a losing record. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is, which is that's true. But, and listen, that's, you know, I spent uh, some time during training camp in Vegas and tried to get a pulse of how they were going to recreate this and, and where they go from here. And certainly they said all the right things about, about retaining their humility and their hunger and the fact that they're, they're, they want to feed off the idea that people think they're going to come down to earth this year. And listen, they said all the right things, but it is hard to duplicate last year for all kinds of reasons. And one of them is that no matter what they say, the reality is they, they're now becoming a normal team. So, yeah. so, you know, a year ago, literally they can go to camp and say every single job is open. That, that just wasn't true this year, Scott, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the top line of, you know, Carlson and Smith and Marchesso were guaranteed that job. And you sign Paul Stashney and you trade for Max Pacioretty. Well, that comes with it an inherent guarantee of what their role would be. And I'm not, it's not a criticism. It's just that now it's like every other team in the league where you start to have a hierarchy and, and you start to be like another team. And so I know that George McPhee, the GM, when I chatted with him about this, said they were going to try as hard as they can to still be the franchise that gives opportunity and, and that, and that continues to, you know, to make decisions based on merit. But I just think the adjustment this year, and I do think they'll make the playoffs, Scott, but I think the adjustment for them this year is just the normalcy of it all. Like, yeah, like they're, yeah. they're, like they're becoming like another team, both for the good that comes with that and the bad. Yeah. Is it the other, um, you know, there were a couple of, of moments in the first few days that, that, uh, again, you know, if you're a team, there are some teams that really need to get off to good starts, right? There are teams that really need to have an early positive vibe. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I've been really curious about, you know, where the Buffalo Sabres are going and with Jack Eichel taking mm-hmm. over as the captain. And, and you and I, you know, I think we were both, and along with the Craig Custance, Eric DeHatchuk, who were, we were all there in Chicago and so impressed with Jack Eichel and his, just his whole personality and the way he presented himself. And was, you know, it was so much fun to talk to him and Rasmus Dahl and the number one pick and oh my goodness they look terrible against boston boston playing back to back after getting waxed by washington so when bruins are embarrassed they're playing 24 hours later um and you would you know in buffalo and it just was not really good and i wonder to me that's a team especially for phil housley in his second year as a head coach there they have to show early traction right and it and it didn't happen for them and already the fans are disgruntled in buffalo and seems to be a perpetual state of affairs for sabers fans in the last what five or six or seven years so i wonder if that's one of those teams where you're like geez that team really needs to show early improvement and it didn't happen against a team that seemed to be ripe for the picking in the boston bruins yeah and that was a really flat effort in an opener against a divisional rival with the excitement of Dallian's debut and Eichel's captaincy and just nothing. I, you know, I was flipping between games, but I kept going back to it. Just looked like a preseason game in mid September. Like I don't get it. Uh, really, really disappointing. I'm actually uh, going to go there myself Monday to watch the afternoon game against the Vegas golden Knights. And I, I want to see how this team gets out of the gates because Listen, I, I mean, it's not like I picked Buffalo to make the playoffs. I don't know if you did. No, no, but I, you, but no, you I wanted to see, you wanted to see growth and uh, a new feeling, a vibrancy, uh, a sign that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, and listen, it's only opening night, and and I, I'm sure they'll bounce back. But my goodness, after what this team's gone through the last couple of years, I mean, that was just that was just horrible, to be quite honest. 
<laughs> well, and talking about Orville, let's go go back to the the Western Conference, and you know we talked about the Central Division and what a bear it's going to be, and you know Colorado getting off to a really important start, uh, beating divisional rival Minnesota in their first game, and that's you know you talk about a team that a lot of people expect to fall back. Well, I think Colorado falls into that group uh, after their miracle run to the playoffs last year. But the game for me that I, you know, I've been really curious to see what happened with uh, the St. Louis blues. I thought Doug Armstrong, again, a, a GM unafraid to make pivotal moves and really, you know, making key roster moves, bringing Tyler Bozak and of course, Ryan O'Reilly coming over from Buffalo, Pat Maroon coming home to be a top line power forward for the blues. And, it was more of the same for the Blues, who fell off the map at the last part of last season, and not a real good night for Jake Allen. And I was reading Jeremy Rutherford, our colleague, who covers the Blues, and, and the fans all over Jake Allen. And there's another guy in goal that I think needs he really needs to have a strong start and really needs to re-establish himself as as the number one guy in St. Louis and a guy who can really carry the load because I, I love that St. Louis team. Like I just love what Doug Armstrong did. And I thought this is a team that's going to challenge Nashville and Winnipeg, but the Jets really made mincemeat of, of St. Louis in, in their opener. And already mm-hmm. there has to be some, some doubts in that, you know, around the Blues team. But geez, is this, we gotta we we gotta have better goaltending and we gotta be better. Like it's not just all Jake Allen, obviously, but we gotta be better in it. And it was disappointing for them to be, you know, basically blown out by the by a really good Winnipeg team. Yeah, I happened to just slip to the St. Louis game at the moment where Brandon Tanev scored a really weak backhand goal on, on Jake Allen, but I went back and looked at some of the game film and he actually I mean, he made some gigantic saves in the first half of that game when it's only one nothing and yep. And, and, you know, I mean, listen, uh, it, it ends up coming undone for Jake Allen, but he's hardly the number one culprit uh, last night in that game. The Blues got waxed. Like, Winnipeg Jets just came in and took care of business, and they're going to do that to a lot of teams this year again. Um, I'm with you. I, I think the Blues are an improved team, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much stock into what happened there on opening night, but I think the crowd needs to calm down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> because Jake Allen was hardly the reason why they lost to the Winnipeg Jets last night. But overall, you know, you do wonder which Jake Allen you're going to get this year. He, he's He's been one of the great Jekyll and Hyde uh, acts in the league the last few years. And when he's on, he's 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 pretty darn amazing. But, but, you know, they need that consistency from him this year. And it's funny, I don't know why I thought this, but you know, with Corpusalo playing the season opener for Columbus and playing well in a win in Detroit last night and people perhaps reading into that in terms of Sergei Bobrovsky's future, um, you know, it made me think it's so hard to trade a star goalie mid-season, right? Uh, it, yeah. It's just, uh, in fact, Ryan Miller going to St. Louis, it's, it's, it's one of those rare things years yeah. ago. But I was wondering if Jake Callen doesn't have a, a good first half. Like is St. Louis a place again, knowing that Doug Armstrong is a gunslinger yep. and Columbus still can't sign Sergei Bobrovsky as they get into January, let's say is, is St. Louis a spot for Sergei Bobrovsky? And, and, and literally I'm just yeah, throwing of that off the top of my head and, and it's not based on, on any kind of conversations, but I'm just, it's hard to say even a guy like Sergei Bobrovsky, who's a Vezina trophy winner and is top five goalie in the world. It's it's still hard to say. Well, you know, he's definitely going to be dealt. Okay, well, where? I mean, it's a weird thing about about goalie trades during the season. 
Well, and it's well, and and you mentioned Ryan Miller, and as soon as you started, I knew exactly where you were going with this. And I, you know, and I, I was it, I was in St. Louis just before the start of the playoffs when Ryan Miller arrived and sat down and talked to Ryan, and you know, I you go back to that spring and they look like a team and they have that period, you know, they've a number of times over the last decade have looked like a team ready to win their first cup or to go to the first Stanley cup final since in the early days of expansion and after the 67 expansion. So, um, and mm-hmm. Ryan Miller just, it, and I know in talking afterwards, it was really hard for him to adjust. And he had a terrible playoff. Mm-hmm. I believe they lost to Chicago in the first round and he wasn't very good. And it was, and to your point, it's, it's, you know, every, every impact player that gets traded mid season or at the deadline, there's a period of adjustment, but it may be more, you know, the goaltending thing is a hard, it's so hard because there's so many subtle elements of, you know, how you play the puck, what you do with it, how you work with your defenseman. And it didn't work for Ryan Miller and certainly didn't work for the blues. So you wondered, would Doug Armstrong go back to the well? And I think it's an interesting question about, Bobrovsky, because that's an excellent question. Like where? Okay, it's, it's easy to say you got to trade him, but so where does he go? But right. it, it would be interesting um, because it is hard. It yeah, is, and, and if you're going to do it, you got to do it early. I think uh, that's, and, and, and that's what's funny about the position because because so few people hold that position. It's a mathematical equation that there are fewer landing spots when you try to trade one. Whereas if they end up trading uh, Artemi Panarin, who looked dynamite by the way last night again, yeah. Uh, yeah. Scoring the scoring the winner in overtime, and he is not going to sign with the Blue Jackets. And he may, as I mentioned on Insider Trading on TSN last night, he, he most likely won't even sign. Period with anyone uh, as part of a trade. I think he wants to see what's out there this summer. Now sure. that could change if it's what I think he has a list of four or five specific markets that he wants to end up in. And, and if one of those four or five teams makes a trade, maybe he does sign. But more than not, I was told yesterday that all signs point to him just being dealt as a rental if he is indeed dealt, which is a, almost like a secondary blow to the Blue Jackets, right? Because it's like, oh, so now we, we won't even get maximum, you know, max right. value for him. Exactly. Um, but, but having said that, even if he is dealt as a rental, at least you know this, they'll be lining up. Like, the, like, I mean, literally, I would say, if you look at the 16 teams that are sitting in a playoff spot in mid-February, 10 of those 16 teams will at least call Columbus on him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, how can you not have room for him on, in, in your lineup? Yeah. Well, and who knows, maybe that kind of demand, which would be different for, you know, say a guy like Eric Carlson last year, you know, because if you were hoping to, to acquire and sign him long-term, I mean, maybe Columbus, the return isn't as bad, you know, maybe you get more because the demand will be so great for Artemi Panera, even if you know you're only getting him for three months or whatever it is that maybe you actually do okay with that. But um, it, it's interesting. And I, it's interesting that you raise that, that uh, sub, you know, the whole idea of, of Bob Rosky and, and just how difficult it's going to be, I think, to, to find a, to find a place for him. Right. And, and who knows, he, he, I, he's going to start the home opener. Um, I was a bit surprised he didn't start the opener um, on the road in Detroit, but uh, again, I, I'm with John Tortorelli. He's like, stop, you know, you, <laughs> he was always on the media. Don't read too much into it. Right. Bob Ross is going to start. The well, home opener. well, well, see where he's at. And, and, and to Torts's defense, I guess where, you know, I've been among the most vocal critics the last couple of years that I don't like teams that overplay their number ones. Cause I'm more convinced than ever that, 
that the tandem is the team that has the best chance in goal. And we've seen that with Holping Grubauer last year and Matt Murray and Marc-Andre Fleury. And I get it. Not every team has the, the ability under the salary cap to have two number one goalies. But I, I, I think there's an, I think it's imperative for John Tortorella to find more starts for Corpus Allo this year. If for no other reason that if Sergei Bobrovsky is still with them come playoff time, that it doesn't look like he's down the 10% energy, which again, to me, I think has been the case the last few years wow. uh, or, for him. I, you know, and I think it's been the case for, I think Freddie Anderson looked tired in the first round last year because he played too much here in Toronto. So I think I, I'm on this wagon and maybe I'm just completely wrong about this, but, but I think the days of a goalie playing 70 games, uh, 65 to 70, I think it's ridiculous. I, I think you need a trusted backup to make it work. Well, and let's, let's not put too fine a point on it, but in, in, in John Tortorella needs to have uh Yunus Corpusalo play as much as, you know, as, as makes sense to play given his level of play, because he may need to use him in the playoffs because, you know, with all due respect to Sergei Bobrovsky, two-time Vezina Trophy winner, he hasn't been very good in the playoffs, right? Last two years hasn't mm-hmm. been good at all. And I think, and you wonder if the same, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the dynamic plays out with UC Saros, fine young goaltender in Nashville and really, really good friends with Pekka Rene. And and, there's a a terrific symbiotic relationship there, right? That's that there's, I'm not suggesting, you know, Saros is trying to steal a job from Pekka Rene, but at some point, Peter Laviolette come playoff time, given that Pekka Rene struggled against Winnipeg in the second round, struggled mightily in the final against Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. in 2017, you may need to use those guys. So it's about resting your big guy. I get that, but it may also be about saying, you know what? May have to go. I'm. I might have to. I'm not. I'm not just. It's not just going to be the veteran guy. It may be the other guy. So. Yeah, I would uh, definitely. I, I, if I was Nashville, I would go sixty forty there this year. Sixty percent Rene, forty percent Saros. And again, it's not just because you're looking ahead because Saros is going to be your starter within the next year or two, but also because I think you want to keep Pekka Rene fresh. I mean, if this is finally the year that that the Predators win their first cup and Pekka Rene is leading them to glory, that's fine. But why not make sure that he's not overrun by the time you get to the playoffs? Now, having said that, I own Pekka Rene in fantasy. I was very happy with his performance at MSG <laughs> last night. And I actually want him to play every single game just for my purposes. <laughs> All right. I have, I have two things I want to ask you, but uh, we're going to ask it at the end of, of the second segment because we're going we're to take a very brief break. We're going to come back. I'm going to talk to... Uh, our colleague, uh, really, in the sport writing world, who is not our colleague now, The Athletic. Everyone is, right, pretty much. But we're going to talk to, we're going to hear from my colleague, Jeff Schultz, uh, here in Atlanta. And we're going to talk some hockey in Georgia. And we're going to talk about Dan Snyder uh, and the 15th anniversary of his passing and terrible uh, car accident here in Atlanta 15 years ago. So uh, that will all be in the second segment. Uh, don't go away, Pierre. I've got some uh, two final questions I want to ask you at the end. Uh, but we'll be back in a moment. All right, here we go. Second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And uh, we've disposed of Pierre Lebrun temporarily. But it is with great play. Well, I didn't mean fully disposed of, but, you know, yeah, I just he rough, takes though. a bit of a break. Yes, but we are honored to have Jeff Schultz of The Athletic. And before we get into the the, the, the real reason, other than it's always great to catch up with you, Jeff, but um, why I, I thought it was important to talk to you today. Um, but uh, it, it's so terrific to have you aboard The Athletic. I mean, people will recognize your name, of course, as the master of all words relating to sports <laughs> here in Atlanta for many, many years with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But I know you, see, 
I, you're not old, but I am. But I remember you when you were a hockey guy. That was your thing. You were the, you were a hockey guy, and uh, you know. So, how does it feel after? A, how long exactly with the Journal Constitution before you you came aboard with the Athletic uh, earlier this spring? And, and what's that transition been like for you? Yeah, first of all, to correct one thing, I, I'm not a master of a lot of words. I only know about <laughs> 13, 14 words. So it's just a matter of, you know, putting them in different places, in different columns. Uh, I have, uh, I was at the AJC for um, almost 29 years. Wow. I worked in, yeah, I know. It was a long time. It was about, my, my wife and I moved from San Francisco. I, I originally from Los Angeles, worked there, worked in San Francisco and, I'm not going to tell the whole story now, but this opportunity came up in Atlanta and we decided to take it. My wife is originally from Pittsburgh, but grew up in Southern California. And we thought, well, let's go to Atlanta for five years and then we'll come back. And so we're, we're only about 24 years over that. Um, but, um, I, I went to Atlanta and wrote on a variety of things. I, I was, I wrote a lot of centerpieces and, um, some investigative stuff and, you know, a lot of football and, um, I was on a project team, and when the hockey, um, w- when Atlanta was uh, granted for the second time an NHL expansion franchise, uh, I walked. I, I was kind of on this project team, and I was getting bored. I wanted to write more often, and uh, I had covered actually hockey in Los Angeles for a short time. And I, my father owned season tickets, so I, I actually grew up. I was one of the rare LA bred hockey fans. And by the way, this is way way pre Gretzky, <laughs> and um, <laughs> way way. So it's not like I jumped on the bandwagon. Um, and so uh, when LA was granted, excuse me, when Atlanta was granted a hockey franchise, I walked into my sports editor's office and, and I said, "Look, you know, I, you know, I appreciate what I'm doing now, and you know." great it's entered all these contests and wins these awards but i really kind of want to cover this hockey team i think it'd be kind of cool to cover a hockey team on the way up you know how it's built i could go on a couple scouting trips and and i i mean he he had this stunned look on his face (laughs) (laughs) and he i'll never forget his words he said well you're the first one to ask it's yours and And, uh, and I basically covered the thrashers for about two and a half years until they said, okay, that's it. You got to come off now. And, um, and yeah, I, I forgot. What was your question again? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, you spent a lot of time, uh, at the journal of constitution, then you know, having come across to the athletic in the spring, you know, what's that transition been like? And we always, uh, you know, it's, it's different people. Uh, with our ever-growing group, you know, have different stories and it's been different experience for them. And I think it's fair, you know, I think it's fair to say that Atlanta is kind of an, it's, it's a different sports town. And you mentioned the second Atlanta NHL expansion team. Well, of course they, I think they hold the distinction of the only city in North America to have lost or have you know seen two teams move. And I'm pretty sure that we won't see right. a third one coming here anytime soon, but I wonder what your transition has been like to working for the athletic and, 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 and basically, you know, especially in Atlanta, which is in, you know, you got the Braves in the playoffs for the first time for in a long time, you, sure. you know, all those kinds of things. I wonder what it's been like for you to come across and, and do something different after such a long time. Well, it's been, it's been both great and, and it's been, you know, a little weird, obviously. I mean, you know, you, you grew up and, and worked in newspapers for years and, and, you know, when you first separate from that, it's like, wow, this is, this is different. And, and this is, and I've changed jobs, you know, a few times before, but I've never changed jobs without changing cities. 
And, and, and so here I am in Atlanta doing the exact same job I did for the journal constitution, doing it for the athletic writing columns, writing about what I want to write. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole thing about the newspaper industry right now in terms of some of the problems um, associated with it, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, what, it really hit home for me uh, actually the day the Braves clinched the division title last week yeah. when, when David O'Brien who covers the Braves for the athletic and does a great job. I, I, I sort of brought him with me from, <laughs> from the AJC. Uh, we let, we basically left the same day and, uh, the day the Braves clinched, it's an afternoon game, but print deadlines in, in the newspaper industry are just ridiculous these days. And, yeah. you know, the, the two writers for the AJC who were covering the game basically had to stay up in the press box and just hammer out these ridiculous, as I call meatball journalism stories, without ever really being able to soak up the atmosphere and see what was going on now, going on downstairs. And you know, the great thing about the athletic is they bless us with time that we could go downstairs, get the story, see the scene. And, and I'm going down, I go down there and, you know, here's this, here's Brian Snicker, the 62 year old manager of the team who spent a lifetime in the minor leagues and 40 plus years in one organization. And he's crying and he's being doused with cheap beer and cheap champagne. And, <laughs> and, and, and it was just a really cool scene. And I got to then go back upstairs and actually try to paint a scene about this. And, yeah. And I would not have been able to do that at my previous job, and I'm not taking a shot at, at my former employer at all. They were great yeah. to me, but this was just a great opportunity. And, and it's been, I mean, I've been there, I guess about three months right now, not maybe not quite three months. And it's been, it's been everything I wanted it to be. And I, I'm not just saying this because I worked there because I subscribed to the athletic long before, uh, long, long before they actually called me for a job and, you know, before they were offering a free T-shirt to right. Well, I, ass- to I assume you, I, ass- I assume you subscribed the moment you heard I was coming over. But anyway, I, I digress. I think that so. I think that is what it was. Yes, the only <laughs> Decatur-based hockey writer, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, well, I, I will say, you know, it's it's tremendous to have you aboard, and and the reason that that specifically on this week that I, I thought it was really important to talk to you and you know apart from wanting to catch up is it this week marks the 15th anniversary of uh, a car crash involving uh, two young players for the Atlanta Thrashers Danny Heatley and Dan Snyder and six days later Dan Snyder uh, passed away as a result of the injuries sustained in that accident and it's it's you know I, I was out you speak of Decatur hockey writers. Uh, I, I live not far from a former hockey writer, John Manasso, who worked with you at the Journal Constitution, and, and John and I have remained friends. And He covered the NHL for quite some time after leaving the uh, Journal Constitution, did a lot of work for NHL.com, and now has crossed over into the dark side in his corporate communications. I'm sure he's much happier and sleeps better and has better hours. But <laughs> he and I were out for a beer, We all, and we get together because we live close to each other. And, uh, quite often, we'll watch hockey in one of the great hockey bars in Decatur um, and we, we always catch up on the game and it was John who ended up writing a book about uh, Dan Snyder and the aftermath of the accident but it was it sort of shocked I think both of us that 15 years had passed and you know I thought it was I mean you go, go back what you were saying about the athletic the ability to you know take some time and to maybe 
you know, sort of take take the length that is needed to to examine, you know, what happens over the course of fifteen years. What is what has changed? What's the legacy for a young man who, you know, really didn't have um, a, a long NHL career by by any stretch of the imagination, but who still made a, a tremendous impact on the people around him and this the teams on which he played. And I know you you were intricately. Integrally involved in the coverage for the General Constitution at the time of the accident and, and after, and I wondered. I thought it was important to talk to you because I know you, you know, it was an emotional time for you. And I wonder when you think of fifteen years, whether it shocks you that that much time has passed, and maybe what comes to mind when you think of that time and Dan Snyder and Dan Heatley and and the impact on uh, on a lot of people and and not just people but organizations as well. Yeah, it, it, it does shock me. Um, much like it shocks me. I've been in Atlanta for 29 years. It shocks yeah. me that that was 15 years ago. It, um, uh, and as I was going through your piece, which is terrific, by the way, you, you spoke to all the bright people and all the people who were intricately, if we both can try to say that word, <laughs> it's, um, not, yes. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy word, um, uh, involved with it. And, um, yeah, and I thought you painted the picture beautifully. And I, I mean, as I was reading the names, I was, I mean, I, it was like, oh my God, yeah, that's, I mean, Dan Marr, I love Dan Marr, the scout, and, and, yeah. and Jared Scaldi and all these people. And, and, you know, so, you know, I actually was covering the Thrashers as a beat when, uh, when both Dan Heatley and, and Dan Snyder were on the team. Um, I was not covering the beat at the time that the accident happened, but I was writing columns and, and obviously I was writing hockey columns, you know, when they merited it. And, you know, when the accident happened, obviously it, it, I mean, you just don't, that's just something you just don't plan on. And, and it just completely, I mean, forever changed certainly hockey in Atlanta and we could debate whether, whether that would have made a difference or not in hockey surviving here. Cause obviously there were other mitigated factors and yeah. And then moved to Winnipeg, but but um, when the accident happened, they they basically came to me and said, "Why don't you go to Elmira and 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 write about this?" And and um, and I did, and and it was, you know, as I'm sure you've experienced this, Scott. You know, we we both written millions of stories in our career, but there there are little moments you remember um, from your career. Maybe it was an interview. Maybe it was something something somebody said. Maybe it was a a moment in a town and I'll, and I'll never forget going to Elmira, this cool little town in Ontario. And it's just, you know, a main street and, and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, seeing Dan Snyder's pictures in the window um, of all these places. And I'll, I'll never forget that have this little plaque or something. I, I seem vaguely remember a plaque in the middle of town um, as sort of a memorial to all these young people that had died um, yeah. strangely enough. And, and this is prior to Dan Snyder, prior to the accident. And, and I'll certainly never remember. So what happened was that my, my, my goal, you know, in, in our business, we, again, we're trying to write stories and paint pictures and we're not all, despite what some people think intrusive, we're going to bang down people's doors. And obviously this was, this is a very, this was a very emotional time and a very, um, delicate situation. And I went to town without any expectation at all that I was going to be able to talk to Graham Snyder, the father, or Louie on the mother. And yeah. I, I, let, let me backtrack a little bit. At the time of the accident, I, I wrote a column right after the, right after the accident. And I believe the lead, and I'm not often fond of quoting myself, <laughs> really, but 
I think the lead was something the effect of we're all here today in part because of we were able to overcome some of the mistakes we made as youth. And, and it was a, you know, it was obviously a reference to, to Danny Heatley driving too fast and, and, you yeah. know, in a, in a car, maybe he shouldn't have been driving and an accident happened. And here's these two, these two best friends who, by the way, came from completely different backgrounds, um, like bonded immediately. And, um, and unfortunately a, a one life was lost and one, you know, one career in life was ever changed. And, I guess Graham Snyder read that column and, and he liked it, but I, but he never, I, again, I had never spoken to him. And so when I went to Elmira, um, I went there again with no expectations that I was ever going to be able to talk to the parents prior to the funeral. Um, I had spoken to uh, the uncle, I believe it was Jeff Snyder uh, a yeah. few times. And, and I, I, I might've spoken to Jake, his brother, Dan's brother and, um, and they both, you know, I, I got stuff for both and I got stuff around town and, and, and I believe my last words to Jeff, the uncle were, was look, you know, I have to have the story written basically. I think it was like by three o'clock the next day or two o'clock the next day, whenever it was. And I think I had most of it sort of put together. I said, you know, when you talk to Graham again, just tell him, and I knew where the family lived. I mean, it's not a big town and I, you know, (laughs) I've been a reporter long enough that I could figure out where they live. You just, I was driving down the street, I drove down the street a couple of times and saw their nice little house. And, but again, I wasn't going to bang on the door. And I told Jeff, I said, look, just, just let Graham know I'm here. I have to have this story written by, you know, whatever time it was the next day. If he call, if he doesn't call me, I don't understand. If he does, you know, I appreciate it. So I went to sleep that night, and I, I can't remember what night it was of the week, but I remember going to sleep thinking, well, this isn't going to happen because he didn't call me the night before. And I got a call. Wow, I know it was still dark. <laughs> wow, it might have been about three in the morning. It was probably about three, four in the morning, and I got a call, and. He said, Jeff, I said, yeah, he goes, this is Graham Snyder. And I, and, I, and you know, wow. as if that wasn't surreal enough, I mean, it's three or four in the morning. So, you know, I, my head wasn't really completely <laughs> in the yeah. conversation. I said, yeah, he goes, look, I know you've been trying to reach me. And he goes, um, I'm up if you want to talk now. Wow. <laughs> like, okay, uh, let me just kind of get myself together. And we actually had a photographer there too. And I said, is it okay for a photographer comes? And he goes, yeah, sure. So um, we got ourselves together and I, and I met our photographer, Bita Hanovar, who's she's a great photographer and met her outside the house. And I might've even walked in before she got there. I can't remember. And um, by then it was probably maybe five in the morning, five thirty. I don't know. I think the sun was starting to come up and um I remember walking in and there was a table, like as soon as you walked in, there was a big dining room table right there. And the table was completely covered with pictures and trophies and a lot of Dan's memorabilia from yeah. his hockey career, obviously from the time he was youth. And I'm, I was just blown away by that scene in itself. And he, and Graham just started talking about, you know, I just, I can't sleep. And, I thought I might as well just go through this stuff now and see what I want to do with it. And, and uh, he told me at that point that he, the only reason he was talking to me was because he had read some stuff that was written. And, you know, I think a couple columns maybe up in Canada sort of turned them off that really banged on Danny Heatley a lot for, for, yeah. you know, just being, you know, a young driver and 
driving too fast. And I, he thought I took the right tact. And so he agreed to talk to me. And um, it's just, I, I'll never forget that moment. And, um, and so, yeah, and I, it's, you know, Dan, Dan Snyder, again, I thought you captured well, was just this great hardworking guy. Um, he was never a guy who was going to, you know, break any goal scoring records or anything, but he's a guy that every team wanted in the locker room and wanted on the team. And, yeah. um, so. yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I, I, to me, like, I mean, that, I mean, that moment is, I mean, it, it's a great insight into how, you know, how, you know, what the job is sometimes and, and, and how things happen and how things unfold. But I, I think it speaks volumes about the Snyder family and how, you know, when you, you know, you probably, you know, maybe the story is different 15 years later if, you know, there'd been multiple lawsuits, if there had been, if the family had been a different family and had approached things differently. I, I was amazed in talking to Jake Snyder, the older brother, who after the accident and after his brother had died, went, came to Atlanta and spent time with Danny Heatley, spent time with Bob Hartley and, and Brad McCrimmon, rest his soul, and the coaching staff here in Atlanta and how that was part of the healing process. And I thought, you know, I think that's what has for a lot of people has remained is the family's dignity and grace and however you want to characterize it. And that, that somehow made it bearable and what was unbearable at the time made it bearable because the family was the way they were. And I think that's why people are so, you know, I'll tell you, you people, people could not have been more kind with their time and, you know, reaching out, whether it was Kevin Shovel Dayoff, who's the GM in Winnipeg now, and they, the Jets still honor Dan Snyder. Connor Hellebuck wears his number now after asking the family if it was going to be okay. The Chicago Wolves still have an award. The Orlando Solar Bears aren't even – their league, when Dan Snyder played, was the International Hockey League. That league's no longer in existence. Now there's an ECHL team there, and they still honor Dan Snyder. And right. I, Let me pose it as a question then. So Pierre Lebrun always gets, me, gets angry with me because it's a, there's a long bit of talking by me and then – an inflection, which denotes a question, but th does it surprise you maybe 15 years later that people, that, that there is still this sort of memory that is kept very much alive. I mean, you mentioned the Elmira, there's a, an arena there that bears Dan Snyder's name. So I wonder if it surprises you that 15 years later, that, that there is, that there's still very much Dan Snyder in, in a lot of areas of the hockey world. Um, a little bit, yes, but, but somewhat no, only because, um, it, it crossed, it, it's one of those stories that, that crossed into other areas, Scott. Um, you know, you had the whole situation of a young, then sort of somewhat upcoming hockey team. You had, uh, one of its brightest stars involved at Danny Heatley, who went on to, you know, have a, a very good career, although probably not as good as it maybe could have been. Sure. Um, you had obviously, um, you know, a, a horrible car accident where, where clearly, you know, the driver was at fault. You had, you know, allegations of, of drinking, but it really, that really wasn't the case. It wasn't involved. I think, I believe police ruled it out. You had, as, as you pointed out, this, this amazing, um, stance by the family, uh, to, to basically immediately embrace Danny Heatley, who was again, you know, one of Dan Snyder's closest friends. And then, and 
the Snyders looked at Heatley as almost like a son and, and, and embraced him. I remember him being held in the, in, in the funeral while he was, while he was breaking down. Um, and, and by the way, that was a, that was a major factor in the, in the decision of a local, um, DA not to prosecute Danny Heatley, um, right. because the family didn't want to prosecute it for vehicular manslaughter. Um, you had, you had a lot of issues outside of, outside of hockey that sort of came into it. Um, and so in that way, I'm not surprised. I just think it, I think that's one of the things about sports is it, it does cross these sort of, you know, boundaries outside of just a baseball game or a football game or a hockey game so often in, into regular life that those are the stories that sort of stick with us. And, and, um, and I think it's great. I think it's great that Danny, that Dan Snyder was, was obviously memorialized and remembered, you know, with the, with the youth center and ice rinks up in, up, up in uh, Elmira and, and that, you know, his, his memory still lives on today. And, and, um, you know, uh, although there were some negative feelings about Danny Heatley here in Atlanta, um, particularly after he, he asked for a trade and, you know, a lot of people, sort of took that as him turning his back on an organization that sort of stuck with him through the whole thing. Um, you know, I, 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 and I think a lot of people should, you know, wish nothing but the best for Danny Heatley. I'm not sure he, and I like the guy personally. I think he's a good kid. I just think he, he I'm not sure he's ever really fully dealt with the demons and, uh, you know, having experienced some things in my own life of understanding that you just have to process things and pray on it. And, and deal with it, you know, head on. Um, I, I think that's, I'm not sure that's one of the things that Danny has done in his life. Uh, I hope mm-hmm. he does. I hope he finds some peace one day. Um, but you know, as, as noted in your piece, he didn't want to talk to you for the peace. And, and I totally get that. I just hope for his sake that at some point he could sort of, he could sort of find peace. Yeah, it's you know it's in you know having crossed paths with Danny lots of times over, you know in back to back fifty goal years in Ottawa after the trade and Marion Hosa coming to Atlanta and uh, but you're right and and there were I think by you know he, you you wonder what might have happened and you touched on it you wonder what you know what would this franchise have been like in Atlanta if Danny Dan Snyder and Danny Heatley are still there I remember talking to Kurt Fraser the the original thrasher's coach and he said you know i i just think of those two kids who were such good friends and different ends of the talent spectrum maybe but both integral to the chemistry of the team and um right. you know maybe it's a mugs game to wonder about those sorts of things but um and i'm with you i, I you know what you want and you know whether dan Heatley ever wants to talk to a reporter about it that for me the the important part of that story and talking to Jake Snyder because we talked about that very issue was you know Danny's been very closed off about that and he's listen he says I completely get it I you know his burden's completely different you know I lost a brother but Danny Heatley's burden is completely different and he says if he never wants to talk about it I'm okay with it um you know the two of them spent a lot of time together after the accident and and didn't didn't feel the need to talk about it and maybe just being together was enough for both of them. And that's, if that's okay for Jake Snyder, it's okay for me. So, um, sure. yeah. All right. Well, this, I mean, this, it, it's in some ways it's been, you know, it was so, you know, it's a terrible tragic thing, but it's been, it's, you know, it was so interesting to talk to various people around, you know, and what they, you know, where they've gone on to Ben Simon is the coach and, 
Grand Rapids, uh, the American Hockey League, and Jared, Jared Scaldi is an assistant coach in Wilkes-Barre with the Penguins organization. And mentioned uh, Kevin Shovel Day off and Don Waddell back, you know, as a GM of the Carolina Hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, uh, I do, well, let me in closing. Do, I, do you are there things that you miss about hockey? Like when when you, I'm sure oh, you don't think. God, yeah. You know, yeah. What do you What do you miss most I, about I, being exposed to it all the time? I I. Well, I mean, I, I think for us, it always comes back to anyone who loves hockey. It comes back to the sport and the athletes. For those of us who, who you know, can get in locker rooms, and I've been in a million locker rooms and spoken to a million athletes, and, and you know, it's um, there's something about the culture of, of NHL players, of hockey players, I should say, um, that's just that's just different, and I miss it, and I. You know, I we we could spend twelve podcasts talking about hockey in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll just say this: I won't speak for the first. I mean, you know, everybody knows the Flames left to Calgary because Nelson Scalbania wanted the money to fund his uh, his uh, real estate empire, um, much like the uh, the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to fund a play. Um, uh, you know the. Uh, I, we don't know if without the Dan Snyder, Danny Heatley incident, whether hockey would have made Atlanta or not. I, I, I think in the end, it really all comes down to ownership and, and management and direction and the ownership. Once Ted Turner sold the team fairly early on, the next ownership group was just awful. They didn't care. They yeah. tried to, they tried to sell it right away. And, and I, I really, as strange as it sounds, I, I'm still not really fully convinced that hockey has ever really been given a full chance here in Atlanta. It's, it's I know that sounds weird, but yeah. um, you know, Atlanta's Atlanta, the Atlanta sports market. It's like you know, you're going to be you're going to f- sell seats at the beginning because you knew, but then you have to win. But then they never won, and and um, people aren't going to show up win or lose. They they're going to show up when not just when you win, but you show you're trying to win. Right. And, and I think they just turned off too many people. And I think it's unfortunate because you're right. I mean, the, the chances of Atlanta getting another NHL team are, you know, less than 1%. And, and it is it is 0% as long as uh, the current commissioner is, uh, yeah. is yeah. in place. And I'm not even <laughs> going to mention the name. Uh, <laughs> we won't go through that whole history about how that happened. But I look, I, I, I love hockey. I still, I certainly in the playoffs, I still turn it on when I can. Um, I miss not having a hockey team in town, but um, my guess is I will have to move someplace if I want to uh, have a hockey team in town again. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll make sure to loop you in next time that uh, there's going to be a, uh, a hockey uh, gathering here in Decatur. I mean, you know, Dan Kamal, the longtime voice of the Atlanta Thrashers, oh, yeah. is, he's working yeah. for CNN, uh, CNNI actually doing sports. And, and they're actually, it's interesting, CNNI is being is committing more coverage and more budget to covering the NHL, which is kind of interesting. I ran into Dan at, in Chicago at the Player Tour not too long ago. So th- there's uh, still a little heartbeat of hockey here in in oh, Atlanta, yeah. and yeah. so the next next time we gather uh, at Twins, you're part of the athletic club now, so that gains you access. So. Okay, okay, so, I got. You. Anyway, I, I will keep you posted on that. But Jeff Schultz, thanks for joining me on Two Man Advantage, the podcast, and, and sharing your memories of uh, of a really important time and 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 obviously a tragic time. But thank you for your time and in, in sharing that today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. I enjoyed it.
as promised, the uh, nice chat with Jeff Schultz. Do you like? Do you remember some hanging out with Jeff Schultz? Jeff and I spent a lot of time together at the uh, 2006 Olympics in Torino. He was uh, covering for his chain. Um, do, you, do you do you remember Jeff when he was a hockey guy? I do indeed. I still follow him on Twitter, despite the yeah, non-hockey yeah. tweets. Yeah, he's a he's a very funny man. Uh, a lot of fun to to hang out with. Yes, I well, you introduced him to me. That's why I remember. Yeah, and, and do you remember like in your hockey writing career? Do you remember the Dan Snyder Andy Heatley accident? Do you have what your what your memory? Oh yeah, I mean, how can you not? Uh, it's amazing to me that it's 15 years ago already, but. Uh, no, that was a huge story. I was at the Canadian Press back then, and um, you know, remember writing a lot about it. And uh, in fact, I I was at ESPN.com when um, by the time uh, they had a, uh, if you remember, the Thrashers went and played a, a charity game in Elmira, Ontario. Um, and uh, you know, in fact, it's funny. Craig Custance ended up there as well, and Craig was still working uh, for the paper in Atlanta. Yep. covering the sure. thrashers yeah. and it's one of the yeah. it's one of the first times that i had met craig and uh you know we we're at that event and uh it was so emotional obviously and uh yeah i mean that was it's one of those things obviously uh, i think that probably danny healy thinks about every day right uh, it's just yeah. it's, it's just one of those tragic tragic events and and um that you just never want on you know, never want to see happen ever again, obviously. And, uh, but it changed, it really changed. I think it changed Danny Heatley's career, understandably, but I think it also, you know, the thrashers handled it really well. You were there, Scott, but yeah. you know, how do you cope with that and how do you get past it? And, uh, you know, that was just, uh, you know, it's just a kind of event that, uh, that you don't forget when it happens during your career. Well, yeah, to me, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's surprise by it or just it's just reaffirming that people don't forget, right? People remember the insider so fondly and there's an arena with his name on it and Elmira and the Jets continue to offer uh, um, his memory with an award every year and Connor Hellebuck reaching out to the family and, and, and adopting Dan Snyder's old number. So these are things that and, and people really you know, people were so happy to talk about Dan Snyder's memory. So that was was it seems like an incredible amount of time has passed very quickly, uh, but it's I think it's reaffirming that people still do remember him and remember him so fondly and remember him in a in such a positive way. So that's anyway, it was uh, sad to think of, but I, I'm glad that I'm glad we ended up writing a story about it. And it was I think it's it's uh, it's nice to be able to talk about it and, and remember the good things. So yeah, um, great, great, great uh, you know that was a great job by you, Scott and. You know, not a story that you really look forward to writing, but I think important to have done that. So once again, another reason to subscribe to the athletic. If you didn't have enough, <laughs> it's, always, it's always good to get a plug in for you. So that's good. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna close out this edition of Two Man Advantage. But I have two questions. Um, first of all, I, I was curious. Um, the um, Tom Wills twenty game suspension. Were you surprised by it? Did you? <laughs> would you? Um, what do you make of? What do you make of what is an enormous hit, if I can use that term, for a, such an important player for the defending Stanley Cup champions, and a needless hit during the preseason uh, against Sunquist uh, from the St. Louis Blues? Your any surprise there? Your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I thought it'd be like closer to 10 games. So that was yeah. quite a statement from George Barrows. And George Barrows probably somewhat frustrated with him because my understanding is George Barrows actually went to see Tom Wilson and, and, and visited with him this summer to go over everything again. I mean, that's, you know, like yeah. that's player safety trying to not punish but change behavior, which is what the MO is for player safety. And so when something like this happens, it, it just must be so frustrating for a guy like George Barrows and for, and for the whole group there, player safety. But I still, it's certainly more games than I, I, I would have predicted. And, of course, it may go down now. I mean, through yeah. the appeal process, we'll see. Because, uh, you know, Bob McKenzie is the one who brought this up yesterday at TSN, but uh, that the Rafi Torres suspension was reduced from 25 to 21 by Gary Bettman. Um, right. And I think part of that is because it went from one season to another. But still, there's still there is precedent if the commissioner feels that, that his own people, player safety, went a little too hard. But... I, I don't know. I, I think it sends a very positive message. On the other hand, I was kind of surprised Barb Marchand was not suspended after mauling Lars Eller, who didn't have didn't seem to have a whole lot of interest in fighting. Yeah, uh, I, at the end of that game. So who knows? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I'm with you on this. And it, I, for me, I, I just hope that the Tom Wilson thing isn't just an outlier, right? He's you know he four suspensions in 105 games or whatever the number is, unprecedented number of suspensions in a very short period of time. So it's clear that Tom Wilson was not getting the message. And you know, he and I sat down and had a long chat, Tom Wilson and I, um, during the playoffs. Oh, he's, he's a great really, kid. Uh, I mean, he's a great kid. Yeah. You love talking to him. He's he's got a great personality. He's a good hockey player. I mean, he's on the first line of a yeah, Stanley Cup championship team. Uh, you know, his his I, I think his borderline hit on Jonathan Marchesso changed the complexion early on in the Stanley Cup final. I mean, I think people in Vegas will tell you that. Yeah. So there's there is a, you know, he makes a difference, but that hit is just so dumb. Like yeah. it's just like why are you doing that? And uh, there's just no place for it. So you hope that, uh, you know, you really do hope he comes back from this as harsh a penalty as you could ever imagine uh, under the circumstances. And then he'll say, okay, that's just a hit when I'm coming across the middle that I just, I got to pass up. It has to become instinctual for him um, because, you know, if if he's able to do that, then he's a good hockey player. It's, you know, I, I remember talking to Matt Cook at the end of his, towards the end of his career. And of course, you know, Matt Cook, no stranger to these kinds of moments. And and there was a guy that I think did get it towards the end. Like, I do think that he, he passed up hits that he might have delivered earlier in his career. And I think he did. He was one of those players that did seem to take to heart what, the player safety officials were telling him and how, you know, and Ray Shiro and when he was a gem in Pittsburgh and Merrill Lemieux, of course, and the ownership group there, they, they were very clear. We, we're not, we can't have those hits in our game. And even though Matt Cook is our right. guy, he can't play that way. And I thought that was really important. And I well, was a bit surprised it, it, by some it, of the players, but I said, you know, some they were surprised that the NHL was targeting them. So like, oh, well, who else would they target? Of course they are. Because yeah. he's, he's done senseless things. So. Yeah. I, although, you know, it's interesting. Beyond Tom Wilson, there is actually, a, a, you know, I know we have to wrap it up, but it, there's a great conversation to be had. And I had this with a couple of GMs after the suspension was announced that sort of this overarching narrative of where is the game headed? And, and I, you know, I think it's a good thing that it, those types of hits are, are, are much 
more rare, not just the dirty ones, even the clean ones. You don't see guys getting hammered in open ice anymore. Yeah. And I was talking to one GM who said, heck, on my team, 15 of my 18 skaters don't hit at all. And he wasn't being direct. He wasn't being, he wasn't criticizing his team at all. He was just saying that that's the, the game is headed in an interesting direction where it's all about speed and skill and the bone crunching game changing body check is, is, is going the way of the dinosaur. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. Yeah. What I do think is a good thing is if we get to a point where we have fewer and fewer head injuries, obviously that's a good thing. But I, but, I, but you do see one of the reasons Tom Wilson sticks out is not just for the dirty plays, but even the clean ones, he hits like a Ram trunk, a Ram truck at a time where a lot of guys just don't hit yeah. like even cleanly. And yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what's, it's interesting to think about moving forward. Like, you know, 10 years from now, is everyone, is anyone going to feel the natural desire to try and, and, and hit someone in open ice in the NHL? I, I don't know. It's interesting. Well, it, it's, it's funny when Tom Wilson and I sat down during the playoffs and for a long chat to bring the, Leafs during the Eastern Conference Final, but and we talked. Uh, people I talked to around the game were like, there are very few players like that. Some people mentioned Wayne Simmons, who of course is, and I'm not suggesting Simmons' being dirty, but boy, he's, he's tough as nails, right? I mean, he will, he will mm-hmm. fight you. He'll drive you through the boards. He'll score three power play goals. He does it all. But there are, there are. You're right. There are, there are so few of those kinds of players. And Tom Wilson is a difference maker when he stays on the right side of the line. Um, and unfortunately, he he doesn't know where that line is, and he if he doesn't right. know if he doesn't know in the next twenty games or eighteen now that he's missed the first few games of the season for the Capitals, um, well that's on him. So, uh, right, well, it, 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 it kind of well, I was just gonna say like every time Brooks Orpik's on the ice, and Brooks Orpik's one of my favorite players, but because he's from another era. Every time Brooks Orpik's on the ice, I'm just wondering if something he's going to do, which was completely normal 10 years ago, is going to get him in trouble. <laughs> I just, yeah. it, it's just uh, like, you know, those guys are just, the players entering this league do not have a hit-first mentality anymore. That's just the reality. Yeah. And, here's, and, I will, and I'll say this about Brooks Orpik, because... And you're right. I mean, the game is is so different. You watch, you know, even in the first two nights. Like I was, well, you know, Carolina, New York Islanders. I mean, I, I, Carolina's blazingly flipped fast. They lose overtime, and then they had like 48 shots on goal. But it's a very very fast game. It does change though, come playoff time, and that's why I think such some, you know, Jerry Sorpek who gets bought out, sorry, gets traded to Colorado, bought out of the remainder of his deal, and then re-signed by Washington, but. And he was under the gun for Washington fans for most of last year and even the season before. Didn't like his analytics and, you know, didn't like the contract and too slow, blah, blah, blah. Uh, For me, Brooks Orpik was one of the most important, certainly most important defensive players for the Washington Capitals throughout the playoffs and especially against Pittsburgh and Tampa. And then in the final against Vegas, he hit everything that moved. He didn't make critical mistakes. He was a force. And that's to me why you mm-hmm. can't, you know, it, you're right. Game has changed. But, it, you know, I think if you ask Brian McClellan, there's, you know, it was important to lock Tom Wilson up long term. And it was important to have Brooks Orpik back in that room because come playoff time, the game does shift. Even if it's subtly, it does shift in where those kinds of players still have a role in it. But it is finding that balance. So um, mm-hmm. that's that, that's my take on, on Brooks Orpik. So. All right, I like yeah, it. I'm gonna let you. 
you got it. You got. I'll even give you the last word here as we end this episode of Two Man Advantage podcast. What are you looking forward to in the next few days? What's uh, what's on your agenda? Well, tell me what's on your I, mind. I, 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 I'd like you to trade me Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, I am the biggest Dallas Cowboys fan that you know, and you refuse to trade him to me. I, I, I think it's rude of you. I think, given our friendship and everything I've done for you, you should trade me Ezekiel Elliott. Apparently, I, you know, I would in general, but I'd, I'll have to call my partner, Craig Customs, and you know he's going to have none of that. But uh, anyway, I, I appreciate, once again, your, uh, <laughs> your, your appeal to my better side to send you Zeke, but I don't think that's going to happen. But we can revisit it next week when we, uh, when we reconvene for Episode 5 of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. But until then, Pierre LeBrun, always great to catch up with you, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Yes, and happy uh, Canadian Thanksgiving. Which what is that? Oh, the little boy Thanksgiving. Yeah, enjoy that. Oh, uh, whatever. Break, you know. <laughs> Forgetting your roots, big boy. All right, good job, my friend. All right, all right, buddy. Good right. stuff. Let me know when we got to tweet it out. Okay, see you, buddy. Okay, see you. Thanks, guys. Bye, Brandon. I'll, yeah, bye. Yeah, I'll, I'll get this out you, by this afternoon. I'll send too. you a yeah. I'll send you a, a title thing. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. Team